the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. We've got a um, bunch to do today. So is it today or is today Earth Day or tomorrow Earth Day? I don't know. One of these days, some sometime this weekend is Earth Day. Uh, happy Earth Day to you, by the way. So every Earth Day on my local show, we have a little tradition. My first radio job was in Tennessee, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, now, if you go to Tennessee and you're on the 40, you got to go, uh, you, get, you go north and you go to Nutbush and you keep going a little further. You're going to go through Frog Jump and not much further than Frog Jump, Tennessee is Hornbeak, Tennessee. Now, if you hit Dixie, you've gone too far. You got to turn back. If you're ever in Hornbeak, Tennessee, then you got to stop and see my friend Bill, Bill from Hornbeak. Uh, he's about as country and as good of a man as you'll ever meet in your life. So every year we started this tradition maybe five years ago. Uh, Bill calls into my local show and uh, cuts down a tree. And, and it's, a, it's a little Earth Day tradition. We've done he fires up his chainsaw, sings a little song, and cuts down a tree. So, of course, we did that uh, yesterday to, uh, to much fanfare, which is very nice. Now, we have another Earth Day tradition, not as dramatic as that. And uh, I do the same segment every year. I make the same argument. Now, it's not that important. I'm not going to die on this hill, so that's why I only do it once a year. But the argument, the short of it is that recycling is really stupid and you shouldn't do it anymore. You should stop recycling. It's a really, really big waste of time, money, energy, and it's actually worse for the planet than just throwing uh, your garbage away. So everyone should stop doing it. Actually, if you want to help the planet you especially should stop doing it and i know it's not a very popular argument and and people are like what are you talking about how, i've been recycling my whole life how could it be a dumb thing to do uh i will tell you the beginnings of recycling and and why it's wasteful uh later in the show i think we'll do that the third hour we'll save that for the third hour so that's our earth day traditions um got to keep them going strong also later we'll talk about the march for science and again how science in the past has been very, 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 very wrong. So busy show. I want to start here though, because this is as good as it gets. This is a beautiful declaration of faith, a beautiful testimony. And I want to thank Opelka for finding this 
on CNN and for capturing it and putting on YouTube for everyone to see. This is the family of the man who was killed by that Facebook live killer in Cleveland. And the the man had two daughters and a son, the 78-year-old man. And the family, the kids, were on Anderson Cooper. And, and what they said is remarkable. Keep in mind, at this point, they didn't know. They didn't, uh, the guy wasn't, didn't, didn't kill himself yet, right? The, the killer. So they thought he was still alive. And this is a day? I, I don't, it's definitely not two days. So it's less than 48 hours after their father was killed, cold-blooded for no reason whatsoever. And this is what they say on national TV. It is remarkable. 1458. The thing that I would take away the most with my father is he taught us about God, how to fear God, how to love God, and how to forgive. Yes. Each one of us forgive the killer, the murderer. You do. We we want to wrap our arms around him. We absolutely do. We don't. I honestly can say right now that I hold no animosity in my heart against this man because I know that he's a sick individual. I know that, you know, because of his sickness, whatever evil overtook him that caused him to do this to my dad is not him. It, It wouldn't be something he would typically do. And I promise you, I could not do that if I did not know God, if I didn't know him as my God and my Savior. I could not forgive that man. And I feel no animosity against him at all. I actually, I feel sadness in my heart for, for this him. man. I do. I feel yes, real sad. All of us. And we want to, you know, we lost our dad, but this mother lost her son, um, lost her children. His children lost their dad. That's and incredible, the girl, Tanya, that, that you're thinking about you know, that even in your time of grief, that you're thinking just, about them. It's just, it's just what our parents taught did. Us. But it wasn't that they just taught us. They didn't talk it. They did they it. They lived it. They lived it. They like lived people would do things to us, and we would say, Dad, are you going to really forgive them, really? And he would say, yes, we have to. So my dad would be really proud of us. And he would want this from us. He would. And he would say, Tanya, forgive them because they know not what they do. Debbie, you know, you, you talked about how, uh, Tanya, you talked about how your friends growing up said that they, they wish they were Godwins. I think a lot of people watching tonight, and I know certainly I speak for myself, I wish I was a Godwin right now because you all represent your dad incredibly <laughs> well. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank I, you. I wish you peace and, and strength in the days ahead. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank God you so bless much. you. Bless you. Mm, I've heard that five, six times. It's it's almost more amazing every time. Three lessons I get from this. Obviously, forgiveness, empathy, and training. These are the three things I want to chat about. So first of all, that's not a normal reaction. That is a biblical reaction. It's not a normal one. It's not an easy one. But it's certainly a biblical one. Forgiveness is incredibly difficult, but it could not be more clear. In the good book, could not be more clear. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, then your father will not forgive your sins. And we can quote all day. It's, it's not normal to do that, which is why Anderson Cooper was so shocked. I wish you could see the video. If you haven't already, go to Opelka's uh, YouTube page. He, you heard him. You, you, I'm sorry, you forgive this man? So that forgiveness is not normal. 
Empathy's not normal. For that, for those for those kids, the daughter there, to think of the family of the killer when that guy just killed your dad and you're thinking of them, man, how do you not hate that guy? How do you not hate this man? And then by extension, just because your hate is overflowing, how do you not hate his family? How do you not hate everyone he's ever come in contact with? And this family not only doesn't, doesn't hate, but has empathy for the killer's family. Wow. And then the training. This is, this is the third thing that I get. The, 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 those adults there, they're, they're not like that randomly or by chance. They were trained to forgive. They were raised up purposefully to forgive and to have empathy for others. Right. Remember at the end when she said, you know, bad things would happen to them as a family and and dad would tell them to forgive. And they'd say, dad, really this, I mean, we're going to forgive that guy for what he did to us. And dad would say, yep. And they learned it time after time after time, that that's the proper way to react. Even in a tragedy and even in the ultimate tragedy, which would be this one killing their dad in cold blood for no reason. And I just, I just imagine, I mean, I know their dad would be proud of them. Right? Because you imagine their whole life, dad, you want me to forgive that? You want me to forgive that guy? Uh Uh-huh. You want me to forgive that guy? Yep. Dad, you want me to, even this, you want me to forgive him for this? Yes, I do. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates and escalates. And this is the ultimate thing. Dad, you want me to forgive this man who shot you on the sidewalk? Who just walked up to you, pointed his gun in your head and shot you in the head and killed you? You want me to forgive, forgive him? Yes, I do. Okay. Now, I want to play one last clip of the family. Because it's easy to, to see this and say, oh man, they are, they're delusional. They're, they're mourning and they're delusional. They're not thinking straight. No, th- this proves it. Because just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you're soft on them. And it doesn't mean that they're off the hook, so to say. Check this out, 1459. I'm going to ask you this, but since you brought this person up, and I'm not going to use this person's name uh, in front of you, but if this person is out there and they're listening, what do you want them to know? Obviously, you want them to turn themselves in, but what would you say to them? Uh, I would say turn yourself in. That would be number one. I mean, because... Although, you know, I do believe in forgiveness, I do believe in the law, meaning when you break the law, there's a penalty for breaking the law. And this man broke the law by taking my father's life. And so although I forgive him, there is still a penalty that he must pay for what he did to my dad. And so I would want him to turn himself in. And and you know what? I, I believe that God would give me the grace to even embrace this man and, and, and hug him without in, in anything I truly do um I, I it's 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 just it's just the, the way right my heart is and it's the right thing to do and so um you know I just would want him to know that even in his his worst state that he's loved you know by God that God loves him even in the bad stuff that he did to my dad mm. that he still loved and that that um he is he has uh, some worthwhile, even though he's going to have to go through many things to get better. 
um, there's worth in him. And as long as there's life in him, there is hope for him, too. I do believe that. Hmm. So that's an important part of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that this murderer, let's say he were still alive, uh, it doesn't mean he should go off, get off the hook and go scot-free. No, no, there are still earthly punishments for breaking the law. But even through that, there's life. And through life, there means there's hope. And that is a fantastic testimony from this family. Their dad would be so proud. one 888 let me Let me wrap up with this real quick. Um, I had the chance to talk to a biographer of Richard Nixon. He has a new book out called Rit- Nixon, The Life, I think. Um, really fascinating conversation. And Nixon's great uh, fault in his personality was deep insecurities. Probably came from the fact that his, when he was young, his two brothers died when they were kids. And his mom never said that she loved him. And that's definitely going to wound someone and then cause some insecurities when you're older. And that insecurity turned into paranoia, which then ultimately led to his downfall. And I asked the biographer for one of Nixon's favorite quotes. And this is the quote that this biographer said. This was a, a segment of a speech that Nixon gave to his White House, House staff on the way out. So this is his mini farewell address on the way out of the White House. And, and the biographer said, if only he realized this wisdom that he's going to give during his presidency, then maybe he would never have needed to resign. I want to play this clip. It's about 60 seconds. There's some good stuff in the beginning, but it's the end about hating people that, uh, that, that's most relevant here. Here it is, 1460. Because the greatness comes... Not when things go always good for you, but the greatness comes and you're really tested when you take some knocks, some disappointments, when sadness comes. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Always give your best, never get discouraged, never be petty, always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. Others may hate you, but if those who hate you They don't win unless you also hate them. And if you do that, then you destroy yourself. So this family, they only lose and the murderer only wins if they hate him. But then if this family hates him, they destroy themselves. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. 
To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I want to chat for just a few more minutes about what happened in Cleveland. So I, I'm not an expert in, uh, it's called theosity. It's the study of why God permits evil in the world and bad things to happen. But I do want to share, or I want to ask some questions, uh, some things we should think about when you see did, what did happen in Cleveland. And and a guy just gets out of the car and says, oh, I'm going to kill that old dude right there. Walks up to him, just shoots him. Like, what, what, what? So it gets you thinking about evil. So, Two different ways to think about it as I see it. So Augustine said that evil isn't a thing. He said evil is the absence of good. So it's similar to darkness. Darkness doesn't really exist. Darkness is the absence of light. Right? So you can't turn the dark on. There's like, let's say you walk into a room and it's light. You don't turn on the dark switch. You know what I mean? So I'm in a room right now and there's there's blinds right there. So light's coming. I, I don't, I can, there's no switch I can flick that will make it dark in here. All right? You have to turn off the light. You have to cover up the light and then it becomes dark. Does that make sense? So, so darkness isn't a thing. And, and Augustine said evil is the same way. Evil is the absence of good. Maybe. Maybe. Or evil is a thing. It's a force. It's something we have to constantly fight against. C.S. Lewis wrote that we are in enemy-occupied territory. If that's true, who's the enemy? It's not nothing. Can't be an enemy against nothing. Can't be in the enemy of an absence of a thing. So Screwtape Letters, awesome book. C.S. Lewis again. So in this book, Screwtape is a demon in hell. And he's teaching his nephew, Wormwood, how to be a demon how to do bad things how to do how to hurt people on earth and it's awesome and you got to read it and in one of the letters the the demon the adult demon the uncle he says you know it's funny how mortals always picture us the bad guys us putting things into their minds in reality our best work is done by keeping things out and maybe one of those things that we keep out of our minds is the presence of evil is the concept of it is, is the idea that it exists at all. And, and I believe it does. Have you ever seen the, the TV show true detective the first season? So I tried watching it one time and I got like, I got two or three episodes and I was like, Oh, this is way too dark. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't need this in my life. And then a couple months later went by and I tried it again and it's awesome. And it all comes down to the last scene. Even if you hate every single episode, the, the last scene is worth it. It's one of the best things I've ever watched at the end. So long story short, you got this detective who's super cynical about everything. He's a nihilist. He, he thinks life has no meaning and rejects all religious teaching and moral principles. And he's just a total, what's the point of living kind of guy. And then he and another detective, they go through this horrible murder investigation. And it's just full of evil in every possible way child murder and blah, 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 all this like super dark stuff. So at the end of the, the show, I'm not giving anything away. He spent the, the super cynical guy spends a long time in the hospital 
And he finally gets out, and he and his partner are walking to their car. And the cynical partner, uh, Rust, he says, I tell you, Marty, I've been up in that room looking out these windows every night just thinking. It's, the, it's just one story, the oldest. And his partner, Marty, says, well, what's that? And Rust says, light versus dark. The oldest story, light versus dark. And the camera pans up to the, the night sky. And it's pitch black out with a couple, with stars, right? It's pitch black, but there's stars. And Marty, the other cop says, well, it appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory. And Rust, the nihilist, the negative guy, the, the negative Nancy, he says, no, you're looking at it wrong. Once there was only dark. You ask me, the light's winning. So we can look at moments like this and easily think that the darkness is winning because it has more territory, right? The darkness has more territory. But I think when you realize that that darkness came first, then you can start to conclude that the light is winning. Still a long way to go. We got a long way to go, but the light is winning. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Slater, Slater, thanks for being here. So, I want to chat about this because this right here is the foundation of a lot of things we talk about. Uh, every time we're critical of something that's going on in our society or even economics and culture, it is based off of the progressive belief that there is no such thing as truth. So there's two progressive philosophies here. One is that truth can't be known. But the more prevalent one today is that there is no truth to be known. Does the difference make sense? So the first thing is uh, there is a truth, but we can't figure it out. But the other one is there is no truth at all. And that's what most progressives believe. Conservatives believe in objective truth. Progressives don't. For progressives, everything is, is, uh, is relative. Generally speaking, of course. And I've probably said that in passing a million times in my last 10 years of radio, but I've never seen two progressives admit it like I'm going to share here, let alone on the same day. Both of these editorials were written and published or were published on Monday. And it, and it was Monday night and I was reading them. I was like, well, hold on. Okay, fine. We got to talk about it now, right? I'm not, I'm not just going to glance over it over anymore. Let's go a little deeper because this is crazy that two, two progressives flat out admitted it. So I want to be clear. This is not an example of progressives saying there's no such thing of truth. This is them saying it. But <laughs> here it is flat out. So the first one is a college student at Pomona College here in California. Uh, this is their school newspaper. Historically, white supremacy has venerated, uh, lifted up. So white supremacy has lifted up the idea of objectivity. 
and wielded this dichotomy of subjectivity versus objectivity as a means of silencing oppressed people. So he's saying, listen, this idea of objective truth, white supremacists came up with this, quote, as a means of silencing oppressed people. The idea that there is a single truth, the truth, is a construct of the Euro West white people that is deeply rooted in the enlightenment, which was a movement that also described black and brown people as subhuman. This construction of the truth is a myth and white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism, capitalism in the United States of America are all of its progeny descendants. The idea that the truth is a, is a single entity for which we must search is an attempt to silence oppressed peoples. Yes, that is silence oppressed peoples twice in the same paragraph. Okay, so white supremacists came up with the idea of truth to silence oppressed people. And the idea that we must search for this truth is what supremacists do to oppress, uh, to silence oppressed people. All right, so there's a lot here. The whole article is just so much psychobabble. It's, it's really sickening that these people get degrees in the first place. But I just want to focus on one point here for the sake of discussion. Truth. Not in school. Truth was created by white Europeans. And he says it came out of the Enlightenment, which, correctly, he says also led to the idea uh, of the bad science that says black people are subhuman. But this person's a little confused because just because a, a group of people in a certain time were wrong about one thing, the idea that there are different races and therefore one is more uh, superior than the rest, that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as truth. It just means that they were wrong about something. You're right. But the very idea that they were wrong means there must be truth. Okay, let, let's, let's break this down. So, so scientists during the Enlightenment, which, by the way, tomorrow's the March for Science, or is today the March for Science. Okay, so here were scientists back in the day who said that there were different races around the world. Some are uh, inferior. I, we, the white people, are superior. Um, and it's, here's the science behind it. Terrible, terrible, racist, horrible science. Now, do you agree with that? Do you agree that there are different races and some are superior than others? No. If you don't agree with that, then let me flip it around. Let me say, sorry, let me try again. If you don't agree with that and someone else does, you think they're wrong, right? So if this progressive person went up to, to a white person who's a white supremacist and said, you're wrong, that means there is truth. Because how can that white supremacist be wrong about something if there's no objective truth to compare it to? How can you tell me that this line is curved if you're not comparing it to a line that is straight? So anyone who says there's no such thing as truth like this student was, they believe that that statement is true. So they're undercutting their own argument. If someone says there is no such thing as truth, is that true? Is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Okay, then there is such thing as truth. <laughs> so the whole argument they make doesn't make any sense. So 
People in the Enlightenment said that black people were subhuman. The student says that's not true. Okay. But what is then? What is true? The only reason that we can say those Enlightenment scientists were wrong is because we know the truth. And the objective truth is that all men are created equal. That is true. So when something doesn't measure up to the truth, we say, oh, that thing is not true. So how can this student say that there is no truth and racism is wrong? Why would it be wrong? Why is racism wrong if there's no such thing as truth? It, it's, it's insane. Like the, you, can't, you can't hold both those views at the same time. You, you can't say there's no such thing as truth and you're wrong about something. Make sense? I know that's kind of tricky, but I just want an okay job explaining that. Um, oh, let's move on. So that's that's number one. That then that's that just a college kid. Bless his heart, right? This is from Casey Williams. She got her PhD in literature from Duke, and she wrote this editorial in the New York Times. She said Trump's playbook should be familiar to any student of critical theory. And philosophy. Critical theory is basically just progressivism. Progressivism and philosophy. It often feels like Trump has stolen our ideas and weaponized them. Hmm, what? Who, whose ideas? Whose ideas and what ideas? So she says, for decades, critical social scientists, progressives, and humanists have chipped away at the idea of truth. We, progressives, have deconstructed facts insisted that knowledge is is situated so it's like man it doesn't you know it's hard to say and denied the existence of objectivity so here's the progressive saying for decades we've denied the existence of objective fact the bedrock claim of critical philosophy going back to kant is simple we can never have certain knowledge about the world in its entirety and claiming to know the truth is therefore a kind of assertion of power. And that goes back to the college kid who said, if you know the truth or the search for the truth is a way to oppress colored people, right? Now she goes on and says that Trump has taken this tool from philosophers who have said there's no such thing as truth. And Trump has weaponized it for his own ends by lying all the time. Alternative facts, fake news, stuff like that. Now, it's hilarious because Trump got progressives to admit that they've been fighting for decades that there's no such thing as truth. But again, if there is such, if there is no such thing as truth, progressives have nothing to stand on. They have no ground to complain about what Trump does or says, because how can Trump be wrong? <laughs> right? If, if there's no such thing as truth, then there's no such thing as a lie. And if there's no such thing as truth, then there's no such thing as right. Right? Does that make sense? There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as truth and a lie. So how can you, a progressive, complain against Donald Trump for lying? How can you complain against him for being wrong? How can you complain against him for being immoral when you have just admitted that there's no such thing as moral? So to be more specific, progressives believe there's no such thing in truth, right? But they're quick to tell you that refugees should be let into America. Why? What truth are you basing that off of? I thought there was no truth. You told me here, quote, humanists have chipped away at the idea of truth 
for decades, she says in the New York Times. But now all of a sudden they say, oh, it's true that refugees should be let into America. Why? Oh, well, it's the moral thing to do. Says who? I thought there is no such thing as morality. Well, it's the right thing to do. Says who? I thought there is no such thing as right and wrong. So progressives say there's no truth, but they don't really believe that. They're just using that as a trick. They've weaponized that against you. How? When you say something is true or right or moral, instead of a progressive arguing the specific merits of what you say, the easiest thing to do is to completely eliminate the concept of truth, the concept of right and wrong, the concept of morality. And their idea is that you now have no more ground to stand on, right? If you say it's true that this, instead of arguing it, they just say nothing can be true. If you say, oh, it's moral that I do this, they can say, well, there's no such thing as morality. If you say, well, this is the right thing to do, well, there's no such thing as right and wrong. That's how they argue. But they know, of course, truth exists. They just don't like it. I know that was a lot. I hope that makes sense. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to quote here from a French philosopher, Bruno Latour. He wrote an essay in 2004. Uh, Let's see. So he noticed that. Well, let me share here. So he wrote. So he's a progressive. He said entire PhD programs are still running to make sure that good American kids are learning the hard way that facts are made up. That there's no such thing as unbiased access to truth, that we are always prisoners of language, that we always speak from a particular standpoint, straight white male, and so on. So, here we have another progressive saying that for decades, he said for decades, We've been trying to teach kids there's no such thing as truth. He says entire PhD programs are still existing to make sure that good kids, good American kids learn the hard way. The facts are made up. There's no such thing as truth, etc. Now, if entire PhD programs need to exist specifically to teach kids that there's no such thing as truth, to me, that says that the natural state of man is to know that there is a truth and to search for it. So think about this. So every university was originally founded based on the idea that there is a truth and we need to discover it and go search for it and find it. 
now universities exist to teach kids there is no such thing as truth. And if you believe there is, and if you look for it, then you are oppressing people. Wow. Now, if there's no such thing as truth, that really, like, I, I got to ask, if you're at a college and you believe there's no such thing as truth, what are you doing there? What, what, what's the, what do you, what do you, I don't know, I don't know what you're doing. If there's no such thing as truth, why are you even there? But again, the idea that this needs to be systematically deconstructed from people to me proves that it's our natural state to know that there's truth and to search for it. Otherwise, you wouldn't need PhD programs to teach you there's no such thing. This is really destructive stuff that's, uh, that's going on right now. Now, this ties in pretty good to what I want to talk about coming up in the next segment uh, about science because whatever, today or tomorrow is the big science march. Uh, which is so absurd. Oh, maybe I could pull up this one quote. I got to find it here. So this science marches, there's a science center here in San Diego and they jumped on board and they're like, oh, we love the science march. It's great and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wow, you have no idea what this is really about, do you? And I'll find this quote here. I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. And it's it's like, you know, this is the science march is all about women's rights and abortion and this and this, and this is from the official website of the science March, right? So this isn't me projecting it onto them. Uh, and I'm like, Oh wow. You, you official science center in San Diego, you have no idea what you're joining. You think this is really about science. You think this is about the scientific method. You think this is about finding truth? No, 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 no. The people who are really marching in this science March don't believe there is such thing as truth. That's how backwards and crazy it is. Science is about finding the truth. And the people who are marching in the science march truly deeply believe there is no such thing as truth. Well, there's their truth. So I want to talk about science and and how science has a very, very, very bad track record with some pretty evil stuff. I'll give you an example of something that's pretty popular today and how wrong it is. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So, Earth Day is today. Or tomorrow, I forget. I, I guess I could just look it up real quick, but it's this weekend. Now, that means we have to do our annual Earth Day segment, and we'll do that coming up in the next hour. Um, we, we did our, on my local show, we did our annual Earth Day tradition, which is an uh, old friend of mine from Tennessee calls in and cuts down a tree. So, we did that. So, that's good. Uh, but now we're going to do our Earth Day segment about recycling and why recycling is a total waste of time, money, and energy, and you shouldn't do it. Now, the way I prove that it's a waste of time, money, and energy, and you shouldn't do it is by going to the beginnings of it and and tell the story of why we even started recycling in the first place. Do you know why? Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think we should? 
Don't you, don't, I mean, if, if everyone agrees it's a good thing, right? But shouldn't you know the beginnings of it? I think when we know the beginning of something, then, and, and, and if it's a bizarre beginning or a bad beginning, then you start to question why the heck we're still doing it today. And that's the approach I want to take with, um, with recycling coming up in an hour. But I got another example of this. And this ties into the science march that's going on today or tomorrow. Because sometimes science is very, very wrong. Very wrong. And we're doing something in our society today that is wrong and it's based off of bad science. And that is sex change operations on children. Do you remember last week we talked about a Yale Medical School doctor? Yale Med School, who said 10 years ago, 10 years ago, what they're currently doing with children would be considered malpractice, but today it's protocol. 10 years ago, if they gave a a child puberty-blocking drugs when they were 10, and then a couple years later started giving them estrogen or testosterone, depending on what they want to be or whatever, That would be malpractice today protocol for thousands of kids. That's the Yale med school doctor saying that. And why do they do that? They do it so that they give the puberty blocking drugs so that it's easier when the child is an adult to have a sex change operation. That's, that's the whole, that's the thing. How did this start? It's happening today. It's becoming more and more prevalent. How did it start? Dr. John money. That was his name. He's the guy, Dr. John Money, most popular in the 60s and 70s. His theory was that gender is learned, that you're not born with a gender. You learn it from society. So he was all in on culture defining gender, and and he was out to prove it. So he came across the Reimer family, and they had a set of twin boys, Brian and Bruce. They both went in for their circumcisions, but the one on Bruce was botched. The doctor messed it up. And Bruce's genitalia was beyond repair. His parents went to go see a psychiatrist, Dr. Money, who saw this as the perfect opportunity to test his theory because these boys were twins. So he told the parents that they should cut off this boy's penis completely and surgically create a vagina on the boy and then raise him as a girl. So they did. They changed his name to Brenda. Now, Dr. Money monitored these twins, Brian and Brenda monitored these twins as they grew older. And in all of his reports, he said, everything's great. Oh my gosh. Just as I suspected, just as I suspected, society treated Brenda like a girl. And here she is growing up a happy little girl in every way. And this proves that gender is a societal construct and that sex change surgeries are successful and it can improve the life of anyone who has one. This is the beginning of sex change operations. This, Dr. John Money. And this experiment right here, 
Now, here's the thing, because there's sex change surgeries going on all the time. Wasn't Caitlyn Jenner on Tucker the other day or Diane Sawyer and blah, 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 all stuff. That, what Dr. Money did, he made it all up. Oh, no, those boys, that was real. But all the positive results completely, totally made up. Now, not only did he make up the positive results, the guy was sick. He made the boys simulate having sex with each other. Made them get naked, get in certain positions, and he took pictures of them. He later defended this saying that part of the treatment for the kids was to engage in his words, sexual rehearsal play. And he said this is important for, quote, healthy adult gender identity. Ten-year-old kids. The guy was a total pervert. He believed that pedophilia was okay and that 10-year-olds could have a healthy attraction to older men and vice versa, and that's totally fine. Both kids grew up horribly depressed. Brian died of a uh, drug overdose or an overdose of antidepressants. Two years later, Brenda, who, remember, started out as Bruce, then went with Brenda, then then went back to being a man and was now known as David, He shot himself in the head with a sawed-off shotgun at the age of 38. And their parents blamed Dr. Money for doing this to them. This was all exposed in 2004. This, this is the beginning of sex change operations. (laughs) This was exposed, again, 2004, and Dr. Money's response was, ah, right-wing media buys. Right-wing media bias, and, and all of this is made up from people who, quote, people who believe that mask, I'm not kidding, masculinity and femininity are built into the genes so that women should go back to the mattress in the kitchen, right? So he's saying that, oh, you're only critical of what I, of, of me, and you're making all this up. There's nothing made up about it, obviously, but you're, you're only critical of this because you think that men and women are, are different and that women should get back in the kitchen. Right? You, you only believe that there's men and women so that you can subjugate women again, which is very similar to what we talked about in the last hour with the two progressives this week who wrote editorials saying that truth is a, is a social construct, is a, something that was created by white supremacists to oppress colored people. So this is the same thing. The idea that men and women are different is just something that you make up so you can oppress women. That's what this guy said. Totally delusional. But here's the problem. Not just for what happened to these two boys, obviously, which is, oh my gosh, could you imagine? But this is what the current science and medicine of the transgender movement is based off of. The idea that you can raise a boy or a girl as the opposite gender and everything will be fine because gender is a societal construct. That's not the truth. But decades of surgeries have been done on kids based on this guy's research. Amazing. So why why does this why does this continue? There's deceit, first of all. Uh, there's deceitful people. Deceitful people play uh, prey on the vulnerable. Um, and then when you're vulnerable, you're desperate. 
right? So you have, you, you have deceitful people who look for vulnerable people and there's people who are desperate. Remember last week when we talked about the Yale med school doctor, you know, how, how, how could a parent think that this is the solution but they're desperate, right? Why did people, and we talked about this maybe a couple weeks ago, why did people get lobotomies as recent as 50 years ago? A lobotomy, I always thought a lobotomy was they would shave part of your head, cut out like a, a rectangle of your skull and go in and do a brain surgery or cut off part of your brain or something. No, no, they would take an ice pick. Literally the guy who did this got an ice pick from his kitchen. Take an ice pick, put it above your eye, in your eye socket, hit it in with a hammer, and then swash it around a little bit on the front of your brain and then pull it back out. That was a lobotomy. That's how they did lobotomies 50 years ago at the VA, at Johns Hopkins Medical Center, at UMass, all around the country, 50 years ago. Why would people do that? Why would, why, they're desperate. People are schizophrenic, migraines, all the rest. They're like, how desperate do you have to be to think that that is a solution. There's deceitful people and there's desperate people and you put them together. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. You're going to love this story. So a professor at NYU, seven, by the way, $72,000 a year to go to NYU. Keep that in mind as I share this story, $72,000 a year. So a professor was appointed um, the chair of a hiring committee, and they were looking for a new full-time writing professor. All right. So this professor was going to teach a, a full year, or excuse me, a first year writing class and a journalism class. So they got a bunch of applications, obviously, and they narrowed it down to a handful of people that they were going to interview. So the chair of this committee received an email from one of the finalists, and she shared it with the rest of the committee. Here's what she wrote. After reading the email aloud, I argued that the missive, this email, effectively disqualified the candidate. The writing was riddled with awkward expressions malapropism. So malapropism is like, it's uh, two words that sound the same, but aren't. So sciences and sinuses, right? So if, if she wrote an email, oh, I, I really enjoy studying the, the sinuses, right? But she meant to write sciences. That's a malapropism. Uh, so imagine if you write it, you wrote an email with two words that sound the same that aren't the same. When, and you're applying to be a writing professor. Misplaced punctuation and other conceptual and formal problems. Rarely had a first-year student issued an email to me that evidenced more infelicitous, uh, inappropriate, more inappropriate prose. Why don't people write like that? I asked my fellow committee members how we could possibly hire someone to teach writing who had written such an email. The candidate could not write. 
I also pointed back to her application letter, which was similarly awkward and error laden. My committee colleagues argued we do not teach grammar in our writing classes. What? So the chair preferred someone else. So then it, it was time to interview that the person who the chair liked. And there was another person on the committee who was incredibly rude to him, belligerent, hostile, angry, just like horrible at this person. And the committee chair was like, whoa, what, what's the deal? Why were you horrible to this person? And this is what he concluded. He had a fatal flaw. The candidate was a white straight male. So after that interview, the chair went to this lady and things escalated quickly. And let me quote, what happened next was telling. I was unwittingly enmeshed in an identity politics fight. The woman who had verbally assaulted me was a black female. And the candidate whom she championed was also a black female. I was informed by the dean that pursuing a grievance or even remaining on the committee was now, quote, complicated. So the dean had her step down from the committee. She went from the chair of the committee to now not even on the committee. And then the committee went on to hire the woman who couldn't write. Okay, so that was last year. Now she's hired. This is her faculty page. Okay, uh, Let me quote from the, uh, from the former chair. Her faculty profile page betrays the same awkward prose, poor incorporation of quotes, and other problems of expression typical of first-year student writers, but usually not professors. You ready? The profile includes a glaring grammatical error. This is the opening paragraph of this person's, this is the faculty page. Like the, NY, the official NYU website. You ready? This is what the professor wrote. The two main objectives in teaching is... The, the two main objectives in teaching is... Are you kidding me? The two main objectives in teaching are... That is a basic singular versus plural agreement right <laughs> noun adjective agreement noun pronoun like that's like that's what are we talking about here the two main objectives in teaching are not is it's like f fourth grade stuff this is an nyu writing professor seventy two thousand dollars a year she has five reviews on rate my professor four of them are one star reviews and then the one five-star she got is from someone who is inspired because she's a black female professor. And the other four reviews, all one-stars, talk about how disorganized she is and how nothing was ever graded and they get no feedback. And she wasn't smart. Now, here's where this conversation always goes. Oh, Slater, you don't want black professors. Oh, you know, this is why racism continues in America. It's the structural patriarchy that keeps people of color from achieving top level positions, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Let me quote from this, uh, this professor, the, the real, the chair of the committee. Uh, it is sheer cynicism to suppose that qualified candidates cannot be found among minority groups. Blatant tokenism in hiring and promotion jeopardizes the integrity of higher education and also undermines the objectives that diversity initiatives aim to promote. So in other words, what good is tokenism for anyone? 
for, what good is it for the students, which should be the number one priority, right? That's what the point of the university is, what's best for the students. So clearly this isn't hiring this professor is not good for students. It's not good for the school. It's, I don't think it's good for black people in America. I don't think it's good for this woman, the, the professor. And it's no, it's no good for anyone. No one, no one wins here. Also keep in mind that this professor has a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and she got her PhD from Rutgers. She got a PhD. She got a PhD and on her faculty page, and this isn't just, you know, listen, everyone makes a mistake, right? Everyone makes a mistake. Well, here, here and there, I'm, I'm, I talk for four and a half hours a day. My, my local show is four and a half hours. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to say one thing here that maybe whatever, or I may do an email here or there and miss, mess something up, obviously. But this woman apparently in her application was screwed it up in the email to the hiring committee screwed it up. And on her faculty page, basic, plural, singular, screw like what? So this is there's a pattern of this in pretty important places, and she has a PhD, which further proof means nothing more than piled higher and deeper. I got to run here, but let me. Uh, I'll end here with the opening paragraph of one of her papers. Okay, because you're wondering, well, how could she get her PhD? Here's how. You ready for this? Brace yourselves. This is the opening paragraph of one of her published papers. The consumption of Nollywood films. Nollywood are films in Nigeria. The consumption of Nollywood films in the United States is a site of complex translational, translational engagements and a location of disjunctured processes that illuminate how diasporas are imagined, created, and performed. This study focused on how three major groups in the African diaspora community located in the New York metropolitan area negotiate identity within the historical, political, and sociocultural circumstances of their locality. African-Americans, Cuban migrants, and African migrants who interact with each other via the consumption of the popular African video films articulate and intricate and layered understanding of each other, as well as their group's meaning of blackness. These articulations show that blackness is a concept that differs inter-ethnically and intra-ethnically. What a pile. But that's how you get PhDs these days. And that's how you get professor jobs at a school that's 72 grand a year. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. I want to talk about how um, it's very difficult to change people's minds on on things. And I think this story here uh, explains this very nicely. So I actually have two stories here. Um, first is a Reuters survey. They called people up and they asked the following question. To what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Now, I pause there because before I even tell you what the statement is, that, that part right there, what I just said, is pretty important. So let me say it again. To what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement? 
Okay, so go ahead. Let's, let's go ahead and answer this. Here's the statement. American exceptionalism, the idea that the U.S. holds a unique place in history, is insulting to people from other countries. Agree or disagree? Now, if I were doing this survey, and this will make sense in a second, but if I were doing the survey, I wouldn't do that question because it, it, it American exceptionalism might be insulting to people from other countries, but it shouldn't be. So if I were answering that, I'd say American exceptionalism is insulting to people from other countries. I'd agree with that. Like probably is. It shouldn't be, <laughs> but it probably, so, but let's take the spirit of what they're probably, what they're trying to do here. So American exceptionalism is, is a bad thing is basically what this, this quote is. This statement is American exceptionalism is bad because it's insulting. To, it is insulting to other countries. That, that's what they, that's what they're trying to do here. So Democrats uh, are likely to agree with that, that American exceptionalism is insulting to people of other countries. And generally that's because Democrats are globalists, right? So they'll agree that American exceptionalism is insulting to people of other countries. Like this is when Barack Obama, when he was first elected, he went to Europe and he said in a speech that, oh, you know, I believe in American exceptionalism, just like the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism and the Italians believe in Italian exceptionalism. So in this poll... 55% 55% of Democrats agreed with that statement. Then they asked the same question, but added a line. Ready? This is what they said. They said, to what extent, and they, they called different people. To what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement made by President Donald Trump? And the same statement. American exceptionalism is insulting to people in other countries. Completely flipped. Now 55% of Democrats are like, oh, no, disagree, disagree. Same thing happened with Republicans, right? Republicans who are much more nationalist believe in American exceptionalism. At first, they disagreed. A majority disagreed with the statement. And then when they found out that President Trump said it, most were like, oh, yep, definitely agree. Mm -hmm, Yep, no doubt about it. (laughs) So they did this for uh, a bunch of different questions, and it was all the same same, uh, pattern. So why? Why does this happen? Why do we not judge the statement based on the statement itself? And instead, we judge the statement based on who said it. Why do we do that? We do it all the time and everyone does it. There's two reasons. First, security in groups. So we don't have time to do it now, but uh, there are four four different stages from being a baby to high school of how you form friendships. So when you're a baby, there's, there's no, you don't play with anyone else. And then when you're a little older, you start to play parallel to someone else. You're not really, there's no roles. There's no real roles between toddlers. And then they get a little older and it's like one-on-one play, but you can't like a third person doesn't make sense. So there's different developmental stages of how kids form friends. When they get into middle school, this is when kids start to form their own personal identity. But because that's hard and it's scary and it's lonely, kids find comfort and security in groups, right? But then the group identity, it's formed not so much based on what the group believes because no one really in the group knows what they believe because they're all trying to find themselves too. So if you put a bunch of people who don't really know who they are in a group, like the group doesn't really know who it is, but they define themselves based on what the group is not, 
Like, we are not the nerds. We are not the, the geeks. We're not the goths or whatever. And that's when you start to get clicks in school. It's, it's natural. I'm not saying it's necessarily good, but it's natural, and this is just how it, it works. Now, here's the problem with this. We don't really grow out of that phase. Most people don't. We still associate our opinions and our identity with a group. So when you're trying to change someone's mind on something, it's really hard because that person knows deep down that in order for them to change their opinion, they're going to have to lose, they're going to have to leave that group they're in. They might lose friends. They're, they're, they're losing a piece of their identity if they change their opinion. Now, the group that they're in, it might be a literal group. Like they might be in a Tea Party group. They might be in a Democrat Party group. They might be in, a, in an environmentalist group. And if they, dis, if they change their mind, let's be specific because it's Earth Day. Let's say you're trying to talk to someone about global warming. All right, and you don't think that it's catastrophic and that humans are involved. And you're trying to talk to a just full-on Al Gore environmentalist. And they're a part of this environmentalist group. They're in Greenpeace. Okay? And they got a lot of friends in Greenpeace. They, form, they, they're, they feel secure in that group because power in numbers, right? This is just natural. So if you're talking to this person and you make wonderful cases, you make a brilliant argument and it's just rock solid, even if they agree with you, even if they agree with you, it is so hard for them to change their mind officially because that means they're going to have to leave their group and they're going to have to lose some friends. And that is really difficult to do for anyone. So they're so close. They're ready to just, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to walk with you. I'm, I get it. Oh, you are so right. And then at the last minute, they're just pulled back because they're afraid of leaving their group. Now that could be a literal group or it could just be kind of this concept of, of a group I'm in, even though it's not an actual group, but it's like, it's like, this is who I believe. This is who I'm, I am, right? This is my identity. My group identity is this kind of like vague concept, but it's the same idea. And people don't want to lose the membership of their group. It's scary. I'll give you an example. My local show the other day did the, uh, the segment I talked about the, the, that made the argument, did the segment that we're going to do coming up in 20 minutes about re- recycling and why recycling is a waste of time, money, and energy. And it's stupid. So someone called in and he's a conservative and an environmentalist. And he said, Slater, you're wrong about recycling. It's a good thing. My grandma taught me to do it a long time ago when I was a little boy. <laughs> and then he stopped talking. I said, yeah. And like, what, what's your argument? Well, <laughs> My grandmother was an amazing lady. And right, and like that was and then I was like, okay, but that's that your grandma was wrong. I'm sorry, like I don't know what the, I mean. So we had a twenty minute conversation and we went back and forth and I'd made it he he said uh, he did the but what about. Right. So people who are on the defensive, they do the but what about. So you make a good point and they go, Oh yeah, but what about? And then you make a good point, oh but what about? And what but but what about? What but what about? So we kept doing this but what about game over and over and over and over and over and over. And finally he just, he was like, okay, but I still think you're wrong, right? It's like, what? So why wouldn't he agree? Why wouldn't he agree with me? Because if he agreed with me and, 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 and changed his opinion, 
that recycling is a waste of time, money, and energy, and it's a dumb thing, and I shouldn't do it, it would be insulting to his grandmother. His grandmother was the group, right? That was the version of a group. Like I'd ha- He would have to admit that his grandmother was wrong. He would have to admit that his grandmother did the wrong thing and taught me the wrong thing. And that was just too hard to do. So instead, he'll just keep saying, Slater, you're wrong, you're wrong, but what about, but what about, but what about, but what about? Because there was something pulling him back. And in his case, his grandma. But it could be a group of people or whatever. Isn't that fascinating? So keep that in mind when you get really frustrated at people who don't change their mind about something. There's a deep reason why. Now, it, luckily, Chris is the person who I was talking to. Chris came right out with the fact that his grandmother taught him how to recycle a long time ago. And he obviously is super close to his grandmother. If he didn't start with that, and he just came right out with, recycling's amazing and you're an idiot. And we just went back and forth for 20 minutes. I would never know why he had such a connection to this idea. Like, why are you so tied to this? Why are you so married to this thing that, that recycling is amazing? And I would get frustrated. Like, why don't you just get it? Why don't you change your mind? Why don't you agree with me? What's wrong with you, right? But the fact that he started off with the whole grandma thing, is like, oh, I get it. Okay, that's why that's so difficult for you. Isn't that interesting? I want to take one more one break here. I want to come back and... Uh, give the second reason why we uh, why we form opinions the way we do and therefore why it's really, really difficult to change someone's mind. It's not impossible. You just got to know, you got to know what it is. So we didn't have time on my local show, but if I was talking to Chris one-on-one, I'd, I would talk to him about his grandmother. If I really wanted to change his mind on this, now I don't really care about recycling that much, but if it was something I really cared about, I would talk about him and his grandmother and his relationship with his grandmother and, and how amazing and what a wonderful woman she is and how she's fantastic. And oh my gosh, she taught you so many wonderful things and her heart was in the right place. And she's a wonderful, beautiful lady. Oh my gosh, I love her. Oh, I can see why you respect her. Right. And, and you, and but you know, this, she was, she, I think she was wrong in this. What do you really think she was right on this? And you kind of like work there because that's where the problem is. Quote unquote. That's what the, that's where the tie is. So if you want someone to change their mind, you got to get to the root of where they form their opinion. And for Chris, it was with his grandmother. He agrees with all the facts. He agreed with everything I said about recycling, which we'll get to in 15 minutes. He just couldn't sever the tie with his grandma. And so many people have such a tough time severing the tie with the group they belong to. Interesting. All right, we'll come back. I'll give you the, uh, the, the second reason why, we, why it's really hard to change someone's opinion. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater i'm very excited for our recycling segment i don't even know if i've ever done it on the blaze this could be the first the start of a new tradition uh all right so again there's uh researchers not research reuters they said uh, you know to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement and then asked it and then said to a bunch of other people to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement made by president donald trump and it was the same statement so i will exaggerate but you know the first time and when they didn't say who it was from, 80% of people are, 80% of Democrats said, um, oh, I agree. Yep, I agree with that. 
And then when they were told, President Trump said it, they said, oh, 80%. Oh, I disagree. Terrible. No, wrong. Mm-mm. No, no, terrible. I was like, what? How, how can that happen? You changed your mind on this just because you found out Trump said it? And Republicans are the same way, right? At first, they're like, oh, I disagree with that. And then they find out Trump said it. They'll say, oh, yeah, no, definitely agree with it. Wow. Why? Jonathan Haidt, H-I-D-T. He has a book called The Righteous Mind. Read it. It's great. Uh, he's a moral philosopher. He uses the imagery of a rider, so a person, on an elephant. The elephant is our emotions. The rider is our rational mind. This is how we make decisions. The mind is there only to justify the movement of the elephant, our emotions. Now, our emotions work first, and they're more powerful. It's an elephant, not a horse. It's an elephant. So our emotions work first. Our reason, our mind, comes second. And the reason, it's not there to find the truth. It's there to justify the actions of the elephant. Think of your, your mind as a presidential spokesperson, right? So Sean Spicer, Sean Spicer never challenges the president. Sean Spicer isn't there to discover the truth or find the truth or Sean Spicer never says, "Mm, that's a really good point. I'll have to get back to the president and and tell him he's wrong on this. Never. Sean Spicer is only there to justify everything the president does. So is our mind. It's there to justify everything the elephant does. So when the question is, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement? The elephant doesn't move. No emotion yet. So then people can listen to the question and make their own rational judgment. But when someone says, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement made by President Trump? Whoa, that elephant's moving all over the place, right? The elephant's, depending on whether you like him or not, the president's going far left or far right, and the elephant's in charge, right? So if the elephant hates Trump, then the elephant's going way far to the left, and then you ask the rest of the question and the rider on top isn't there to answer the question anymore. The rider is there to justify what the elephant just did, what your emotions just did. And your emotions just said, I hate him. I hate president Trump. Whatever he says, I disagree with. So they ask the question. And even if you, you, someone, uh, if you, if you just heard the statement itself, you would have totally agreed with it. Your mind is now justifying the emo- the elephant and saying, Oh, we're way over here because that statement is wrong. It's a stupid statement. And he's an idiot. That's how we make decisions. Gosh, it's important to know this. And by the way, this is how we think too. No one is above this unless you have complete mastery over your emotions. Unless you have complete mastery over that elephant. Which almost no one does. But it's also what other people think. So if you want to change someone's mind, you have to speak not only to their rational mind, but you have to speak to their elephant. You have to speak to their emotions and then have compassion for the real emotional difficulty it takes for someone to change their mind because in a way they're also changing their identity in a way they're changing well like Chris his relationship that he had with his grandma this memory he had with his grandma about recycling and it's really hard for someone to make that jump all right our annual Earth Day segment about recycling. We're doing it next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. That is America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Third hour. All right, it's game time. So there's a handful of segments that we do every year. It's a bit of a tradition. This is our Earth Day segment. Happy Earth Day to you. It's very exciting. So the argument here is very simple. I'm going to lay it out as emotionless as possible. I'd love to hear from you if you disagree. Uh, but why you disagree? And, and the, the reason has to be more than, well, this is what I've always done. That's not... That's not an argument. Now, I want to let you know how I'm going to do this. I think it's incredibly effective to go back to the beginnings of a thing we do. right? Because we may be doing something that we've always done our whole lives, never, ever once, not one time ever questioning if it's a good thing. We were just told it was a good thing. So we just keep doing it. But if you go back to the very beginning of it, you may uh, start to question if it's actually good. So that's what I want to do here. So here's the argument. The argument is that recycling is a giant waste of time, money, energy, and you shouldn't do it anymore. So stop it. Stop recycling. I mean, literally, like, get, get rid of the blue bin in your house. Throw it away. And when you're at a, out at like a McDonald's or whatever, and you're done eating, and you have a plastic bottle in your hand, and you have... Uh, wrappers in the other hand, don't go through this mental game where you're sorting the trash and then which, which trash goes in what bin and then the plastic goes in and up, put it all in the trash. Put it in the trash. Better yet at home, take the blue bin and put it in the black one and just throw that away. Next time the trash comes, throw away your blue bin and just have two trash bins. Throw everything away. Now, if you recycle because you think it helps the planet, definitely have to stop because you're making it worse you're making things worse you're making the planet worse you're hurting the planet stop recycling that's my argument so why do we recycle it all started on may 22nd 1987 let's go in the way back machine the mobro 4000 the Mobro 4000, I'm not kidding. The Mobro 4000 was a giant barge. This barge was full of garbage from Long Island. Now, normally this garbage would have just been put in a landfill. But this garbage was put on this barge because it was going to be sent to North Carolina for a pilot program to turn the garbage into methane. Let me just stop here one, one real quick. This happened March 22nd, 1987. March 21st, 1987, there was no recycling. There's another weird thing that goes on in our world where we think that we're doing something now and that it's just been this way forever. No. When I was born, there was no recycling. This is a pretty new thing that we're doing, right? All right, so barge or garbage on a barge going to North Carolina, pilot program to turn the garbage into methane. When it got to the port in North Carolina, the people of North Carolina said, eh, we don't want to do that pilot program anymore. And the barge said, well, take the trash. And North Carolina's like, well, we don't want your trash. Go away. So the barge then went to New Orleans and said, will you take the trash? And they're like, no, we don't want your trash. So then they went to Mexico. And Mexico said, no, we don't want your, I don't know, how to, basura. And then the barge went to Belize. 
And Belize obviously didn't want the trash either. So the barge went back to New York City, and then New York City didn't want it anymore. That's when it gained some media attention. No one wants the garbage. So environmentalists jumped on it. And they created this perception that we are out of landfill space. We're out of, look, look, there's nowhere to put it. No, it's not that there was nowhere to put it. It's that no one wanted it. But they ran with it. Nowhere to put it. We're out of landfill space. And because we're out of landfill space, got to come up with something else. That's the beginning of recycling. And everyone was overjoyed. Politicians loved it. PR consultants loved it. Environmentalist groups loved it. A bunch of new recycling corporations basked in the movement. Whoever manufactures blue bins were like, oh, this is awesome. And Americans everywhere patted themselves on the back for being so eco-friendly. And no one stopped to think that this is incredibly stupid and a huge waste of time and money. And is there a shortage of landfill space? No, there's no shortage of landfill space at all. If we keep generating garbage at our current rate for the next thousand years, we could put all of that garbage in one landfill a hundred yards deep, 35 miles long on each side. Now that's a lot. That's a that's big. It's a big hole, but I'm talking all the garbage we have and a thousand years of garbage. So until 3017, a thousand years they say, well, that's, that's huge. 35 miles on each side. A thousand years, a long time. But still, that landfill will be one-tenth of one percent. So it'd be 0.1% of all the land that is currently used for grazing cattle. So 0.1% of all the land that we use for grazing cattle, we can dig a big deep hole and put all the garbage in it for the next thousand years. We're not running out of landfill space. So the single premise, the beginning premise for recycling is not true. So now they came up with all these new reasons to recycle, right? The classic one is uh, we're running out of raw materials. No, we're not. We're not. There's more forests for timber than we've had in the last over 100 years. We're not running out of wood. So why are people so worried about recycling paper? We're not running out of plastics. It just comes from oil. It takes more energy to recycle paper and plastics than it does to make new paper and plastics. It takes more energy from coal power plants to recycle these things than it does to just make new of these things. So if you think you're saving the planet, why would you advocate for recycling, which just requires more energy, therefore more pollution? And of course, it costs more too. But we're not running out of raw materials. We have more raw materials now than ever. So the Simon Urlich wager, I'll do this. Uh, I'll save this. I'll save that. Remind me to do that. The Simon Urlich wager. The point is we're not running out of raw materials. Let me, let me emphasize instead the point that recycling is not a carbon neutral activity. Just because you, you people think recycling is good or think it's green, that doesn't mean that it doesn't require a ton of energy. For every ton of recycled paper, it requires 5,000 gallons of water. What a waste. 
And then, of course, the electricity used to run the recycling plants and the gasoline used on the recycling trucks to go around following the garbage trucks when you can just put everything in the garbage truck and cut that in half. Just throw the bottle in the landfill. All but Slater, landfills are evil. Remember, so it started off with landfills are full and there's no more space. And now it's, well, they're just bad. Have you ever been to San Diego? Have you ever visited San Diego? So one of the, the tourist attractions here in San Diego is SeaWorld. I used to live half a mile from SeaWorld. SeaWorld is built on top of a landfill. It's right by the ocean. SeaWorld, the current SeaWorld is built on top of a former landfill. Now that landfill wasn't just your regular landfill. It, it, you know, it was too, but it also had a ton of toxic chemicals from the military and the aerospace industry here in San Diego. That's where they sent their waste to this landfill and they put SeaWorld on top of it. I've been to SeaWorld a million times. It, it, you would never know. No one knows. No one's like, hmm, seems like a former garbage dump here. No, no, no one says that. Balboa Park, which is our big like central park in San Diego, the whole northeast corner of it, there's a golf course there now. Uh, that's a former garbage dump. Miramar, our, uh, it's our marine air base in San Diego. One of them. Uh, that's a former garbage dump. No one in San Diego knows this. And that's the point. I don't know why people are so scared of dumps. Most dumps are just covered up and there's parks on top of them or buildings and houses and neighborhoods or SeaWorld. So we're not running out of landfill space. We're not running out of resources. I'll prove that next. We're not saving money by recycling. It's incredibly expensive. So why do we keep doing it? There's no reason. You shouldn't. Actually, the only reason we really keep doing it now is because every single reason that you should recycle has been debunked. The only reason we do it now, and this is from the guy, the EPA guy, I forget his name off the top of my head, the EPA guy, who started this whole recycling thing in 1987 and some of the top advocates of recycling today, they were asked why we recycle today. I'm not even kidding. The reason they say now is because it feels good. That's truly the only reason why people still recycle today is it feels good. Be smart, be prudent, be a good steward of the planet. But that doesn't mean we have to do foolish, mindless, wasteful things. Now, I'm not going to die on this hill. Not a huge deal. I only make this argument once a year on Earth Day. But I do think it is a good conservative principle and a good principle of life to question why you do everything you do and I, why I do everything I do every single day. Why am I doing it like this? And to reevaluate. And if something doesn't make sense anymore, don't do it. And that's true with recycling. Just don't do it. Get rid of it. Stop. We had a, uh, a Bible study at my group. This is a pretty funny story, actually. We had a Bible study at my group a couple months ago. And someone in the Bible group invited just a stranger that they met in a park to come to my house and for the Bible group. Right. And they're like, Oh, come to my friend's Mike, Mike's house. So it turns out this guy actually listens to my show. Right. So he didn't know until he got here. He's like, wait, Mike Slater. So he had a soda in his hand, a plastic bottle. So he goes to throw it away and he pulls out, the garbage bin underneath our sink right now, if you pull it out, there's two garbage bins there. Right. And he goes, which one's recycling. And as soon as he said it, he goes, Oh, you really don't recycle. Do you? I said, no, of course not. Just throw it away. 
and he threw it away and the world is fine. And actually the world is better off. So I'm being serious. Don't recycle anymore. By the way, that original barge full of garbage in New York City, the one that couldn't find a home, they ended up dumping it in New York City where it would have gone if it never went on the barge in the first place. Do you want to know where that dump is? Have you ever seen the U.S. Open in tennis? It's there. It's underneath the tennis stadium. They built the stadium over the garbage dump. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. So I think that's a pretty sound argument as to why we shouldn't recycle. It does no good. It does bad. It hurts the environment. It costs more money. It pollutes the earth more to recycle. It doesn't make any sense why anyone does it. It's crazy. I'll simplify this. I know you get it, but just just help people imagine this. So let's say you're recycling to save the planet. By the way, at all the science marches going on and the Earth Day marches, look at how they leave the uh, the the. the park that they march in like they really care about the planet anyway if i tell you that it takes one unit of energy and pollution to make a new plastic bottle it takes one unit but five units of energy and pollution to recycle which would you do just throw it away make a new one and we're not running out of raw materials i'll do that in the next segment i promise i want a little more time to be able to to spell that out. But so the question is again, really, why do we do this deeply? Like, why do we still do this thing? John Tierney is the science writer at the New York times. He said, special interest politics is one reason pressure from green groups, but it's also because recycling intuitively appeals to many voters. It makes people feel virtuous, especially affluent people who feel guilty about their enormous environmental footprint. It's less an ethical activity than a religious ritual. Right? Really think about that. It's less of an ethical activity than a religious ritual. It's really just for show. It's just to make people feel good about themselves. But here's the problem, and this is what John Tierney says. He says, but many recyclers want more than just freedom to practice their religion. They want to make these rituals mandatory for everyone else too, with stiff fines for sinners who don't sort properly. Seattle has become so aggressive that the city is being sued by residents who maintain that the inspectors, the government inspectors rooting through their trash are violating their constitutional right to privacy. Like what is wrong with people where they're having, there's government officials who go through the trash, making sure that you put your plastic bottle in the right bin. What what, what, what are we doing now? There's this push. This is the new thing. The push is uh, zero waste cities, a zero waste city. So de Blasio, New York city wants New York city, with what, 10 million people, what, 10 million people to become a zero waste city. What are you talking about? That's, that's absurd. <laughs> zero, no waste. What, what? So 
in different cities, max, max 35% of things thrown away uh, can be recycled. Maximum. Usually it's like 10, 20%. 100%? There's no logic to that whatsoever. That is that is total just nonsense made up to make people feel good. Zero waste. That's the dumbest thing ever. Now, some recycling makes sense. Let me just now recycling cardboard is the the thing that can be recycled that makes the most sense. Like that's the that's the one that's it's still not cost effective, but it's the most almost cost effective to recycle cardboard. But my wife and I we recycle all the time. Uh, we don't call it recycling; you call it repurposing, I guess. Uh, for instance, we uh, use a big pickle jar. We got from Costco and we kept it and we pour bacon grease in it. All right. So now it's our bacon grease jar. We kept it and we reuse it for something different. That's recycling. Uh, we have a drawer full of plastic bags, right? The plastic grocery bags. And we use those for different things around the house, right? That's recycling. The, uh, the t-shirt I'm wearing right now, I wore it like a week or so ago. I didn't throw it away when I wore it the first time I washed it so I can wear it again. That's recycling. I mean, that, that would be inefficient if we wore a shirt once and threw it away. That's inefficient. But we recycle it. We wash it and we wear it again. So that's good. We recycle homes. We recycle cars. They're called used cars. We recycle books, right? We give them away, sell them to other people. So we recycle every day where it makes sense. There's no government mandate that says you have to wash and rewear your clothes. It just makes sense. It makes so much sense that we voluntarily go out and buy washing machines and dryers because it's even worth it. That that's a, that's a good investment is to buy a washing machine and a dryer for a thousand bucks and, and wash your clothes and go buy detergent and all that, as opposed to just buying new clothes every time. So that that's recycling. That's cost effective. And we just do it. We don't need to be mandated and told to do it. We only need to be forced to do things that don't make sense inherently or instinctively or at all. So if the only reason that people are recycling is to pat themselves on the back or to avoid guilt, don't feel guilt have no garbage guilt for the rest of your life. Don't ever feel guilty again. Put the plastic bottle in the regular trash, put it in there piece of paper. Don't put it in the blue bin. The blue bin's dead to you. Put it in the regular trash. You'll feel guilty. And also, if, if someone sees you, you'll feel shamed. You'll be shamed. But why? Don't ever again. And if you pick up your blue bin and you put it in the garbage dump itself, then you're saving your city and the taxpayers and yourself a ton of money by not having to recycle anymore. And you'll save the planet because now we don't have to spend water or energy recycling things for no reason. You're welcome. one 900 I want to come back with uh, a really, really important fact here about raw materials and how we are not running out of them. We're just not. Every generation has a doomsday prophecy of how we're running out of this, we're running out of this, we're running out of that. We're not. We're ne- nothing. Nothing you think we're running out of, we're running out of. And we never will. I'll prove that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. So, uh, Paul Yerlich, let's talk about this guy for a second. So, Paul Yerlich, we've talked about him before. And this is uh, relevant for the, well, the whole recycling thing we we're just talking about, but also the today's March for Science or whatever. And how scientists have often been very, 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 very wrong. And Paul Yerlich was one of those scientists who was very wrong. He is the guy who started the whole overpopulation fear. And he wasn't just some guy who wrote a book. He was on Johnny Carson 25 times saying that the world is overpopulated and we're going to run out of everything. We're going to run out of raw materials. We're going to run out of food. Everyone's going to die. He said that in by the year 2000, this is in the 70s, he said by the year 2000, England will, everyone will, in England will be extinct. Everyone will die. Everyone in England will be dead. The book was called Population Bomb. And this had serious ramifications. I mean, this guy, this guy went all in. Um, it led to a lot of eugenics thinking. Um, no one should have more than one child. Uh, he talked about putting stuff in the water that would make people sterile so that they couldn't have any more kids. I mean, this guy's total nut. The federal government sponsored a traveling exhibit for school kids called Population the problem is us. Roe v. Wade? Roe v. Wade, I believe, and this isn't just me, Bob, Bob Woodward said the same, um, and there's other evidence, but I believe that uh, Roe v. Wade abortion was passed by the Supreme Court because they saw abortion as a reasonable solution to population control. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said recently, that in the zeitgeist of America, just in the ethos, in the conversation of America, was the idea that there's too many people on the planet. So, of course, abortion is an easy solution to that problem. So there are dr- really dramatic effects to this whole uh, overpopulation thing. Anyway, the point is, uh, Julian Simon, free market guy, he challenged Yerlich to a $10,000 bet. And Simon said, we're not running out of raw materials. You think we're running out of stuff? We're not. And he said, all right, Paul. You choose five raw materials. Okay, so we let Yerlich, Paul Yerlich, choose the five. You choose five raw materials that you think we're running out of. Pick a date anytime in the future. And I bet you that there will be more of those materials at the date of your choosing, and the price will be lower than it is today. Right, Paul Yerlich, sky's falling. We're running out of stuff. Everyone's going to die. Mass famine, whole thing. And Julian Simon says, okay, pick any five raw materials, pick the time frame, guarantee you there'll be more of it, and it'll cost less money. So you're like, said, of course, I'll take that bet. And he picked five metals, chromium, copper, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And you're like, picked the dates, 10 years. This was in 1980. So he said, all right, 1990. You're like, said, 1990, uh, September 29th, 1990, those five things will be totally gone and will cost a ton of money, right, for the few that does exist. So the 10 years go by, and each of those metals more prevalent than 10 years before, and prices were lower. The price of copper fell 3.5% over the 10 years, and tin dropped by 72%, and everything else was in between. So how did Simon know that he was going to win that bet? Because you had all the doomsday people saying, we're running out of everything. How did Simon know he was going to win? Because Yerlich and all these other doomsday guys, they keep overlooking the most important thing. 
When they talk about the shortage of raw materials, they, they overlook the most important thing. They always overlook the unlimited resource of human ingenuity. When there's a shortage of something, the price of it goes up. That high price sends a signal to the producers and creates an incentive for people to go find more of that thing. It creates new technologies or people go create new technologies to find more of that raw material, to acquire more of that raw material. This is why we've shared this story many times before. Aluminum used to be more precious than even gold. Right? Louis XIV, when guests would come over, great, like high, high level guests, he would give them silverware, you know, forks and knives made of gold. But when they were the highest level guests, they were made of aluminum because aluminum was so rare, so hard to find, so hard to mine. And now everyone in America has a roll of aluminum foil in their kitchen. We made fajitas last night and we wrapped them up in aluminum foil now. It's like, whatever. Why? Because when the price went up, we figured out new ways to mine it. And now it's super prevalent. So it's with all this stuff. And then if we're running out of something, our human ingenuity comes up with another way to do that thing. So for example, copper wiring. So copper got pretty rare for a while. The price went really high. So then we came up with fiber optic cables, which uses sand, plenty of sand. So now we don't need as much of the copper. Oil is another perfect example. I just finished the Rockefeller biography about a month or so ago. And what was amazing about it is everyone thought John D. Rockefeller was a nut. The guy owned a vegetable, uh, vegetable uh, store, right? Sold fruit and fruits and vegetables. And everyone thought he was a total nut for investing in oil because there was no need for it. <laughs> no, and no one was sure if there was any of it. They found some in Pennsylvania and that's when Rockefeller got in. But all the scientists were like, ah, well, that's, you know, this is the only place where there's oil, Pennsylvania. And no one invested except for Rockefeller. And then a couple years later, they found oil in Oklahoma. And they said, oh, okay, it's only in Oklahoma. It's in, it's in Pennsylvania and Oklahoma. And then they found some in Texas. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's only Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Texas. And then they found some in California. Oh, it's only. And then they found some in Russia. Oh, we're running out. Running out of oil. We're gone. And we're not running out of oil. There's an article just yesterday I read about new fracking and, and shale oil found in China. There's more oil now than ever before. Everyone thinks we're running out of things. We're not. We're not. Now, I don't want to get on a whole thing about oil necessarily, but the people, the progressives, the environmentalists have made an argument for a while that we're running out of oil, peak oil. You've heard that before, right? Running out of it. They've kind of abandoned that. Have you noticed this? In the last couple of years, no one really makes the argument that we're running out of oil. They just make the argument that it's bad. So it doesn't matter how much of it we have. It's just bad. And we shouldn't use it. Even if we had an infinite supply of it, we shouldn't use it anyway. Interesting, right? Why? The progressives, they don't care that we're running out of oil, even if we were. We're not, but they don't care about that. They just want you to stop using it. Why? Because they want us to de-develop. The left's ultimate goal is to, in their words, de-develop the United States and the Western countries. 
dedevelop. It's interesting that they're called progressives. Progress, right? And their literal goal is to de-develop the United States. So that sounds, what do you mean, de-develop? I'll take a break here. I'll prove it next. In their words, why would I make that up? I'll prove it next. one 933 But just know that we're not running out of raw materials. We're not. We're not. We're never, we never will. Name something we've run out of. We'll start there. one 933 93 Oh, you know what? You know, they used to use, they used to use whale oil to, uh, to light homes, right? Whale oil for like candles or whatever. And, uh, but, oh, Slater, we're running out of whales. No, we're running out of whales. They, that's just found, used kerosene instead. And now we don't use kerosene, we use electricity, right? So we just find different ways to do things. We've never run out of anything. So why is everyone always so worried we're going to run out of things? It's crazy. 888-900-3393, Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hey guys, can we play clip uh, 1463 actually right here? This is uh, this is an RFK campaign ad from 1968. He's in a classroom with a group of, I don't know, maybe, maybe third or fifth graders or so. Here it is. Robert Kennedy and some people who aren't registered this year. In 10 years, these Americans will inherit the problems we don't solve today. It's suggested that in the next several decades, the people are going to start having to wear gas masks in New York City because of the air is becoming so polluted. 750 pounds of refuse are, you breathe every year. And the same thing is true to a lesser degree in cities all across the United States. That will spread to the rural areas as well unless we stop it. The things that we can do about automobiles, there are laws that we can pass about uh, dumping and uh, throwing refuse in lakes and streams and into the air. Otherwise. The Secretary Gardner said we're all going to have to live underground. Industry must do something, and then individual citizens. And then the demand, the interest that all of you might take in it. And I think that's what's going to make the difference in this country. Nebraska can make the difference. man. Going to start living underground? Gas mask? Good night. Scaring kids. Crazy. Same stuff today, though. Just different. I mean, different, but same, same point. Um... So this is my point about de-developing the world. That's the whole point of the environmentalist movement is to de-develop the world, which is funny because they're progressives, right? Progress is what you think they stand for, but they don't. They want to go backwards. So this is the Guardian newspaper, England. The headline is, forget developing poor countries. It's time to de-develop rich countries. I told you I didn't make that term up. So I actually want to thank the person who wrote this article because they're being honest about their intentions, which is good because now we can have a real conversation about it. So they are critical of the UN uh, uh, mission about sustainable development because this person's argument is the UN's strategy for ending poverty is business as usual, growth. And the person says that the strategy of growth hasn't worked to end poverty in the last 70 years, which is patently absurd. Um, actually, 
this is interesting. Someone just sent me this randomly. Uh, let me see if I can pull this up. We're going to have time. All right, so poverty. This is uh, this is from Oxford. The number of people in uh, extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is something like less than a dollar a day or something. So the number of people living in extreme poverty in 1820, so 200 years ago, it was 94% of people were living in extreme poverty. 1920, it was uh 1920 82%. So 100 years ago, 82% of the world was living in extreme poverty. 82%. Today? Hold on. Sorry. Press the wrong button. Today it is interactive graph 9. So in 100 years we went from from 82% of people living in extreme poverty to nine. And this guy's like, oh, it's all wrong. It's all right, 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 growth. No, that's never worked. <laughs> anyway, his point is we need to stop trying to grow the poor countries. And instead, we need to de-develop the rich ones. So instead of trying to make poor people rich, we need to make rich people poor and then we'll all be happy. Quote, economist Peter Edward argued that instead of pushing poorer countries to catch up with rich ones, we should be thinking of ways to get rich countries to, quote, catch down to more appropriate levels of development. Blah, 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 blah. Won't go on reading any more of his nonsense, but just know that this person, when he wrote this uh, argument, was sitting in an air-conditioned apartment behind their laptop computer after they ate breakfast and know that they have lunch coming up brought to them by farmers from all over different parts of the world. I love people who live in luxury and then tell the rest of the world and the rest of us that we should then live in poverty. Right? You first. Did you see the guy running for parliament in England? He used to be an Olympian. I guess he's a two-time Olympian or gold medalist or something. And he his platform is about obesity and ending obesity. And he said, you know, what are the two, pro, the two countries in the world that have the, the greatest handle on the obesity epidemic? Cuba and North Korea. It's amazing what they've been able to do to stop obesity. And the guy's like, they don't have any food there. People are starving to death. Well, yeah, you, you know, uh, uh, right. But like, that's, that's another example of how that's just, that's their utopia is that world. Unbelievable. So think about all this when you're watching the science March or whatever, and people are all oh, I'm pro science, mm-hmm, pro science. Yeah. Well, environmentalists know that if they can take over the, uh, the word science and the concept of science, then more people will fall in line with their ideology just because science, you know, it sounds, it sounds, well, are you, are you disagree with science? Like that's just supposed to shut your brain off. If someone says, well, scientists say you're just supposed to just mindlessly follow them like a lemming, even though the scientists may say one thing, but by the time it gets through that, political person's brain and then out of their mouth it's something completely different but you're just supposed to follow whatever that person says no matter what no questions asked that's what they want out of this science march just know that science has been wrong many many times before and know that it is just as perverted by politics as any other aspect of our society has been too i'll end here fred siegel says if i were to pick a point at which liberalism's extraordinary reversal began. He's talking about the reversal from positivity to negativity. He said it would be the celebration of the first Earth Day, April 1970, 
20 million Americans, 2,000 college campuses, 10,000 elementary schools. Largest public demonstration ever held in the United States. And this is when Senator Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day, invoked reasonable scientists to warn about the accelerating rates of air pollution that would force us to wear breathing helmets to survive outdoors. (laughs) We're fine. They're often wrong. Just do what makes sense. Slider Crusaders, we will see you next Saturday. I'll be the great rest of your weekend. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.